Well done, Tyler. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father God, we do come to this time and we sit under these words. And Lord, I recognize that as we do so, we do come from all kinds of different places. Uh, some of us come in this room and we sit under these words. Uh, and Lord, these are words that we long to find life in and through. Uh, we come here having believed in you a long time, believing in you today, uh, and desperate for you to work in our lives in a substantial way. Lord, I recognize others of us come in uh, this room, sit under these words, and these words are strange. Uh, we're wondering if you're real and if you are, if you are good. And then we're wondering furthermore if these words will have any impact in the areas of our lives that seem most need, in need of help. And Lord, I recognize further that some of us come in here well. Others of us uh, are either here and very sick or not here because we are very sick. Lord, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we are here believing and trusting and hoping in you, or whether we are here with, with a faith that is barely hanging on by a thread, whether we are here um, in, in joy uh, and in wellness, or whether we are here with a very broken body and all kinds of suffering and pain, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, that we do all ultimately come the same with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, to be changed by you. I pray that you would open our eyes and show us how you have addressed this need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Great to be with you all this morning. My name is Darren. I serve as one of the pastors here. And we are continuing our sermon series uh, that we're calling A Sinner After God's Own Heart, which is primarily concerning the life of David. And I realize that in our uh, content so far, we actually haven't gotten very much to David yet. And uh, the reason is because I, and to understand uh, who David is and to understand how God deals with a person who is a sinner, you have to see David through the lens of Saul. And so we are, we are there today. David has entered the scene officially, at least in my, my segments. Sam goes a little bit out of order. Sorry about that. Um, but in my segments, uh, David has entered the scene. And for those of you who are here for the first time, I want to give you the premise of this series. The premise is this, that in the Old Testament, David rises up as someone who is described to be a man after God's own heart, someone that God deeply and thoroughly and profoundly approves of to the point that he raises him up to this extraordinary level of leadership and influence and responsibility over his entire people. But at the same time, as we will see uh, in passages that will be coming in, in a few weeks here, David himself is really one of the chief of sinners. He sins in absolutely extraordinary, explosive, and then even destructive ways. And so the question that I've been asking week after week is, why is it that some Sinners get to be described as being after God's own heart, and others are not described that way at all, and we'll see that play out in our passage today. And friends, I'm saying this because uh, central to your growth as a Christian has to be your growth as a Christian aware of your own sinfulness. But there are, some additional, there are some additional things. There are ways that you will respond to your sinfulness that will determine which path you go down. And I am longing to see you, like uh, this Rembrandt painting here, 
uh, communing with God, dealing with your own sins, dealing with your own brokenness, acknowledging even the explosive things uh, that you have done, whether in thought, word, or deed, and yet still drawing close to God and not drawing away from him. And in today's passage, I want to tell you, this is, um, this is one of the more disturbing passages in our sermon series, right? Some of you, I, I've been um, reviewing my sermon passage with my uh, discipleship group that we call Wednesday Men, and this one got a pretty strong response uh, to the passage because it is so disturbing, so I want to just throw that out there for you and acknowledge that, and hopefully we're able to make some sense of it together. So what's going on? Uh, the, what's happening here is that this passage comes right after uh, the, the passage we covered last week where Samuel tells Saul that he is no longer going to be king over Israel. He says, the king is being torn from you. It is being taken from you. And we looked at that uh, in some detail last week, and what we noticed Partly is that Saul hears that and he responds to that by saying, I don't think so. I'll, you know, come and take it from me. Basically, he, he continues on with what he's doing. He does not bow before the will of God for the life of the people or for his own life, but he simply says, he simply keeps on going as king. And this is uh, one of the interesting things that I wanted to mention to you that we see here in this passage is that God immediately, uh, in the next chapter, sends Samuel to go anoint Saul's successor. But what's interesting about it is that it has to be done in secret. Did you notice that? So he actually tells Samuel to make up like an excuse so that Saul doesn't hear that he's going to anoint his successor. And friends, I want to tell you that because I found this to be so encouraging to me, and I hope that it, perhaps it is to you as well. Right, what's part of the message of this chapter, part of the message of this book is that God is always at work in ways that people don't appreciate, right? Here is, here is Saul thinking that, all right, Samuel said I don't have the kingdom anymore. We'll see about that. I'm fine. You know, I've still got my military. I've got my servants. I've got my influence. I've got my land. I've got my money. I've got my health. I've got all these things. And he's, he's going on his business as usual. Meantime, meanwhile, in the background, God is anointing his successor. And then, as we'll see, of course, his successor will actually become his armor bearer, right? His, his successor will become someone who is close to him at some of his most vulnerable moments. And friends, I want to tell you that, right? We're, whatever situation you're in, the, the trials of our lives, the sins of other people, the things that we face, one of the greatest temptations is to think that God is not moving and working and active in the moment in those times and in those situations. And the very first thing that we see in our chapter is, you're wrong. God is at work today in the things that you are facing. So says Holy Scripture, right? Saul did, had no idea. He was completely out of the loop on all these things that were going on. And God is very content for, for these things to happen kind of behind the scenes, undercover, to be revealed at the right time. We don't actually know um, how much David and his, brother and his family knew about what was going on, right? Uh, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit hard for me to tell how much he knew about that, but we definitely know that Saul 
was unaware of what was happening. So that's the first thing, is that God is at work behind the scenes, right? And I want to tell you, I want to ask you the question this morning, as you size up your circumstances, your trials, your situations, I want to ask you, do you really know what God is doing right now behind the scenes? Do you really know what he's up to, what he's uh, active in? That's the first thing. The second thing that we see here um, is really getting at the heart of, I think, our, our sermon series title, what is extraordinary about David, right? Why is David better than Saul in the economy of God? What's the main thing that David has that, that separates him from Saul? What's the main thing? What's the secret sauce? What's his kryptonite, <laughs> right? What is it about David, right, who, who Jesse didn't even bring to the meeting? You know, sometimes it's rough when you're at work, you know, and there's a really important meeting that's going to decide the future of the company, and you're not even invited. You just walk by and you see, you know, people in the room. David wasn't even invited to the meeting. It's like, it's like his family forgot about him. Sometimes my kids, you know, ask me, did you forget about me? His dad actually forgot about him. He was, you know, seven, you know all these sons, and he's like, oh, yeah, we have another one out there. <laughs> he's taking care of the animals while, you know, the big boys are here doing their thing. So what is it about David that, that makes him extraordinary? And the passage uh, is, doesn't hide this in any way. It's absolutely clear, uh, as we'll see come out in great detail. The thing that makes David extraordinary, the secret sauce, as it were, the reason that he gets to be in the Rembrandt, right, and not Saul, is the presence of God's Holy Spirit, right? The very first thing that we see happen after he's anointed is what? It says the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, right? And the author is making a big deal out of this, right? Um, you know, we see that in verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. What's the very next thing that says, is, is happens right after that? Look at it, it down in verse 14. What is the author doing? He says the, the spirit rushes upon David, and then it says what's next? And the spirit departs from Saul, right? Spirit rushes on David and the spirit departs from Saul. And the author will actually give us uh, more of these contrasts as the, the uh, passage goes on to help us appreciate that the thing to be desired most in life, right, as you think about the things that you long for, the things that you want more than anything this morning, right now, right, are things that I want so deeply, so desperately right, myself, and this, was, this is orienting for me, I hope it is for you, the things that you want right now, what God is saying to you is more than any of those things, you ought to thirst for his very spirit. That is the thing, and it is more, he is more precious than anything you could possibly be desiring or longing for or hoping for or working for or eager for this morning. It's the, it is the main distinguishing factor between David and Saul, uh, played out throughout the passage, is the presence of his spirit. And then, so said my, Wednesday, my, uh, my beloved Wednesday men, great group of guys, they held my feet to the fire um, so I can, hold, so I can do, be of useful to you. And they said, Darren, you have got to explain, verse 14, what in the world is happening? Right? Harmful, the spirit departs from Saul, 
And then what's it say next? And it will say this repeatedly throughout the passage. A harmful spirit of, from God torments Saul. Spirit departs, and instead, God, from God, a harmful spirit is sent to torment him. What is going on here? Right? And we started getting into all kinds of theological problems with this statement. Right? Is God, is God creating evil? Is he, is he like in charge of the demons? Like, how does this work? And I'm like, guys, I was not at the top of my class in seminary, okay? <laughs> like, I cut class sometimes to hang out with Josh. Like, <laughs> like, I don't really know what to tell you here, you know? And Sam is like somewhere in the world at the moment. I don't know where Sam is. He would probably know this. So what's going on? Well, um, I did do my research, and uh, this, is, this is the answer that I think is most likely to you. What I think we're seeing in this passage is actually a phenomenon that we see reference to on multiple occasions in the New Testament, right? This is for the church. This is for y'all, right? In the New Testament, we have these references that are thrown out there occasionally. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one here from 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is what Paul is writing to Timothy. This is New Testament, not weird Old Testament stuff. This is New Testament stuff for you guys that like you might encounter this afternoon, tomorrow, right? This is what uh, Paul says to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. He's charging Timothy to deal with uh, the legalism in his midst and to preach the word. He says, this charge I entrust to you, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. And then he says this, by rejecting this, by rejecting uh, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Right? Paul uses this language of handing over people to Satan. Right? Uh, Jesus will actually uh, describe something that I think has some similar similarity, some similarities with Peter. He says, you know, Peter... Satan and I were talking about you earlier today. He says, Satan and I were having a conversation, and he has demanded to sift you as wheat. This is where Peter is at the height of his arrogance, right? He's the height of his confidence, height of his arrogance. No, he, he's rebuking the Lord of creation, right? It's the most arrogant thing I think a human being is capable of doing. At the height of that, Jesus says, you know, you are in the midst of a spiritual and a satanic discussion, mediation, negotiation that you have no idea about. And this is what he says, but I have prayed for you, meaning not turning you over to him. I'm not letting him have his way with you. I'm holding on to you. And he said, what he, basically what he says to Peter, when, you're, when you have come back, when you have been utterly broken and humiliated, right, and therefore, by the way, made useful to my ministry, when that's happened, Strengthen your brothers, right? What do you hear in that? I've prayed for you. I have not given you over to Satan. I have not, I have not given in to Satan's demands to have you completely in his own way in all the ways that he wants to have you. Instead, I've prayed for you. I've held on to you. You know, it's interesting. This language, um, you know, there's uh, language with some similarities in Romans 1. It says, because they did not honor him as God, they rejected him as God, they didn't give thanks, 
He gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting. And then he gave them over so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And there's principle in the New Testament, right? That when you harden your heart to, to such a degree, this language isn't used of, you may be turned over to Satan. You know, and I'll tell you on the session, this is how we think about church discipline, by the way. Right, which is really sad. Tip, you know, we've only done, we've only had to to excommunicate a, a few times, um, and when we've done that, it's been really hard because typically, folks are really prideful. Oh, and it, and all of a sudden, your you know your bad insults start flying left and right. You know, like you're a terrible pastor, and I'm like, I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but we still have to do this. You know, insults are flying left and right, nasty letters, all this sort of stuff, right? And and what's hard is that. We know that when this is happening, that this is one of the New Testament equivalents of saying, we are releasing you into the care of Satan himself, right? That is what, that is what church discipline is. We are, we, are, we are letting you be out of our care and, and out of the Lord's care. And from, from our fallible perspective, we are releasing you into the care of Satan himself. And friends, I want you to appreciate the this, this seriousness and the severity of this. Right? Because the, the New Testament, these comments are directed towards the church. These are not directed towards the outside. Right? Where sometimes the, the leaders and, and what the apostles say, we, you turned over to Satan. I believe that is what is happening to Saul in this moment. Right? Saul is being turned over to a harmful spirit who torments him. So what does that look like? Right? What might it look like? Uh, in, in our lives, if we are being tormented, if we are hardened to this point, right? What's something that happens? The first thing that happens is um, you become disturbed all the time, right? Which, which I found this to be incredibly fascinating, right? What was the old ancient medicine for being disturbed all the time, right? How did you treat that? We didn't have like, you know, we didn't have risperidone back then or one of these other ones, right? How did you treat that? Answer was music, right? He sends, he says, you need a musician. Music can distract you. It can do something to your brain to help you in this way, right? So he's, he, of course, in the will of God, he, who does he happen to call? Just by happenstance, who's the best liar player back in the day? Well, it's none other than the person that God is anointing to succeed him, right? That in the will of God and the movement and the activity of God says, you know, he comes to this place where he says, I need help, I need some treatment, I need someone who can help me. And they say, well, we know this guy. We know this, we know this one guy who would be great for this. He's really good at playing. So he gets David and he comes in. And that's the first thing we see, right, is that um, Saul becomes very disturbed and he's in need of continual treatment uh, to help distract him from the misery that is his own life, right? That's the first thing that I noticed that I thought was interesting. The second thing is that he becomes profoundly abusive, right? Saul becomes profoundly abusive. What does that look like? Well, um, you know, if you've ever known someone who's abusive, you know, you, you know this better than I um, for sure. But one of the things I've noticed that was interesting is that uh, in, in the first part of the passage, it says that Saul loves David, right? When David comes and starts playing the lyre and he helps him, he feels better when David's around. He's like, I like it when you're here. The first thing is he loves him. What's the thing that happens after that? Well, he tries to pierce him. 
He tries to puncture him. He tries to execute him with a spear, right? And that's what an abusive person is like. He goes from, I love you in one second to, I'm trying to kill you in a second, right? He goes from, I love you, oh, you're the best, to, I'm going to try to kill you. Because pings pong, it's back and forth. I don't know if you've ever seen that or experienced that. Uh, but that's what's going on with Saul, isn't it? Uh, the other thing we notice is that he becomes deeply paranoid, right? Deeply paranoid and deeply jealous, So he becomes, it's interesting, the passage concludes uh, with these words. He says, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. He becomes afraid of David. Right, so here's David. He's just doing doing what his master's telling him to do. Right, he's just volunteering to go, you know, into battle against the giant. He's playing his lyre. He's doing his thing. He's, you know... I sort of wonder, like, what the conversation would have been like, by the way, for David as he went home to wherever, you know, to Jesse and his brothers. Like, oh, how is the king today? He's like, well, I evaded him twice today. <laughs> He's like, he tried to kill me twice, but it was okay. You know, we're, we're hoping that tomorrow's a better day. I'm going to try a different tune. I'm going to try something in a major key tomorrow. <laughs> no more minor key stuff. It'll be major key. We'll see if that goes a little bit better. Right. But yeah, Saul becomes increasingly paranoid. He becomes increasingly fearful. Um, and, you know, he becomes a pretty scary, destructive person. And friends, what is the point that I'm raising with you? Right? The point is this. Do not take the, the, the beginning, the entrance of hardness of your own heart. Do not take that lightly. It has the capability to grow to where you would become a person that you you would not like to see, right? Do you think Saul set out and said, you know, I think I'm going to be the kind of king that spears his armor bearer, right? I'm going to be the kind of person that treats someone that I love deeply in this way. He didn't set out to become that. But hardening after hardening after hardening after rejection of God, finally, when Samuel has to spell it out to him very plainly, you know, explain it like I'm nine. Okay, explain it like I'm five, right? Very plainly, you are no longer the king, right? Even still, he says, now, of course I am, right? The hardness leads to a self-deception, which leads to a satanic experience, which leads to all kinds of destruction in the lives of innocent people that happen to be nearby. Right, that is what's going on. And friends, I tell you that because one of my goals is, is really twofold. Number one, I want you to be afraid of your own hardness. Right? You feel your heart getting hardened. You feel you're starting to uh, treat people in a way that's harsher, harder than it was before. I hope that you walk out of these doors appropriately fearful of that. That's the first thing. The second thing, go from the other side, is this. I hope that you can see in here and that you can see in the economy of God and you can see in the ways of God that there is nothing more to be desired in life than the presence and the power and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit of God. See, that was a thing that Saul didn't really value, right? He, He wanted his power. He wanted his kingdom. He wanted his influence. He wanted these things. And meanwhile, David is over here. He's just content to do his thing with the animals, right? And he's the one that has the spirit. Saul, on the other hand, is the one that loses the spirit, holds on to the kingdom for a little bit, but he loses the spirit. And I'll tell you that 
you know, my, my heart for you is that you would see in this passage the absolute overwhelming desirability of the Spirit. Uh, it's interesting, this language that's used. I want to just uh, point this out for you so that you don't miss it. Look in verse 14 of chapter 18 uh, on, on the right side of the page there. It says, and David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. It's interesting. I loved the little, I loved the, the, uh, the chanting that happens now at Ironworks, right? We are broadening our liturgical capabilities, and we have chanting now thanks to our of our young people. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't tell them to do this, but I have in my notes the very passage that they chanted this morning. It says, and I'll, I'll do it for you since you might not have been able to hear them. This is what they, uh, what they recited for us this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And listen to the last verse. In all that he does, he prospers. Right? Quite possibly written by David, by the way. This is Psalm 1, chanted by our, some of our uh, youth group members over here during our prayers of adoration. Right? What is going on here? What the psalmist, right, which could be David, is saying is that I delight, I find the richest joy when I am meditating on God's word. Why is that the case? Answer, because that is what the Spirit does in your life. You want to know if the Spirit's active in your life? He's, he moves you towards the scriptures. He moves you towards contentment. He moves you towards the things of God. He moves you towards sacrifice. He moves you towards showing patience to people who are driving you nuts, right? He moves you towards uh, increasing kindness. He moves you towards looking like the person of Jesus Christ. And David says, when that happens, I find that success becomes more frequent, right? It becomes that I'm, that I'm planted, that I'm rooted. And we see in David that the Lord's blessing with him is so profoundly obvious all the time uh, to, to the point that it drives Saul to be a little insane. And it's interesting because the New Testament will speak of the liberality of God in sending his spirit. Uh, let me read from you Acts 2.17. So, uh, Peter gets up and he says this. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Right? And to understand the trajectory of scripture, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, it was extraordinary for someone to have the spirit of God like David did. Right? That's why we're reading about him. It was not common. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he gives up his life, right, part of what's going on at Pentecost, part of what's going on in this season is he's saying, guys, the spirit is now for everyone. Like every one of you, kids included, right, you have access to something that was absolutely extraordinary in the Old Testament, right? Like you could, you could come to this table and you could say, I want to empty myself of my sins and of my pride, and I would like to beg you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. And you can go home and you can meditate on the Word day and night, and God will pour out His Spirit upon you in profound ways. Like, like we have that access today it was not present in the time of David, right? It was not present there. It was absolutely extraordinary. But that's really where the New Testament is going. And it's interesting, we see a picture of it as I'm gonna close here. We see a picture of how God does that, right? 
you know, I couldn't help but I couldn't help but notice in the passage as David is, you know, David will become a huge and massive and a big hairy sinner in the passages ahead. You will see that and you won't like it, by the way. Right? When we read about some of his sins, you will be ready to throw him out of the room. But right now, he's looking pretty good. Right now, he's just a musician, you know, who like takes one for the team now and again. And, you know, is a really kind and gentle soul that is absolutely successful, very courageous, all, you know, wins the battle, gets the head of the giant, you know. But he's going to become a big sinner, and we, we, we wonder about that. But in this passage, he is uh, the one who has not done any wrong so far as relates to Saul. And what does Saul do? He gets so angry that he attempts to puncture him. He attempts to pin him to the wall, right? And David has to constantly evade him. And I believe it's a picture uh, of our table that's before us, right? In that the Lord Jesus Christ comes and there's no deceit in his mouth. He's not harming anyone. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not committing any sin. And yet the people that are around him, what do they become? Paranoid, jealous, angry, and then eventually murderous. Only in the case of Jesus, he does not in the end attempt to evade them. But he says, take your best shot. And they do. And he dies. And he does that so that he can absorb our sins, so that he can take your sins upon himself, so that, why? So that you can have the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the entire heart of the message of the gospel. Jesus says, look, if I don't go away, if I don't die, if I don't, if I don't absorb the sins of the world, well, then the helper won't come. And it's, that would be so much worse off for the helper not to come. Jesus has an absolute priority on the, the power of the helper. So much so that he's willing to give up his own life, his own contentment before God, his, his own well-being, so that you and I can have every single sin forgiven and can come back to him. And friends, I want to tell you, if you're already down this path, right, that looks like Saul, if you've been hardened, if you're starting to show features of Saul, I want to just tell you, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to say, no more. I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn. Right? If you're not there, praise God. Don't go there. Come, come to this table today and say, fill me with your spirit. I lay down my sins before you. I lay down my pride before you. And join a family of broken people in this kind of worship. Let me pray for you. Father God, we do praise you that you have loved us so deeply. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for the work that you did on our behalf. And we adore you, Holy Spirit, because we long for you more than anything this morning. And so we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we join our voices with the company of heaven and their unending hymn of praise. Let's stand and sing together.